I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. With just three weeks to polling day, we debate the big issues in the upcoming family referendum and we'll hear from both sides. Controversy continues over golden handshakes at RTE. The media minister says she's been reassured that Frida O'Keefe's €450,000 payment was within RTE's rules and doesn't need to be reassessed. Strong feelings in the County Louth town of Drogheda over plans to accommodate asylum seekers at a local hotel. We get the latest. And as WhatsApp lowers its age limits, we ask, do the tech titans care about the harmful content that our children see online? First tonight, the country goes to the polls in just three weeks' time to vote in the family and care referendums. The referendum on the family is seeking to amend the constitution and expand the definition of the family beyond just marriage. The amended text, if passed, would read like this. The state recognises the family, whether founded on marriage or on other durable relationships, as the natural primary and fundamental unit group of society. Well, to debate this, I'm joined by Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney, Karen Kiernan from the One Family, both advocating for a yes vote, Independent Senator Michael McDool and Sunday Times columnist Brenda Power wishing for a no vote. Uh, let's get both sides. First to you, um, Karen McKiernan, because your Group One Family was a group founded by single mothers. So let's start with why you believe this constitutional amendment is needed to recognise families outside of the nuclear or specifically marital founded family? Yeah, it's a great amendment that we've been looking for for 50 years. Our founders who founded Cherish back in 1972 are now women in their 80s. And it's so important to them that the family, the, the country now goes out and recognises their families by voting yes, yes on the 8th of March. I'm thinking of Mary Kerrigan from Clare. She's 83. She has said publicly, I really want my fellow citizens to go out and do this so that she will feel included because they had such a tough time. They kept their children under difficult circumstances. They founded a national movement and they've helped hundreds of thousands of people. So it's for them, but it's also for all the 43% of children who are being born today to parents who aren't married to each other. It's for long-term cohabiting committed couples and it's for the kinship carers. It's for people who step in, the grandparents, the aunties and uncles, who mind family members when the parents aren't able to. So it's bringing all of those people in, which we've been told is about a million people. So this is a really positive opportunity that has been long awaited and will really provide equality for children and families. Um, okay, on this one, Brenda, uh, the Constitution has a view on family right now, and it's one that's based on marriage. It's a very narrow definition, isn't it, really, given you know, what we heard from Karen there, that you know, 40% of children born are born outside of marriage. And should our Constitution now reflect that? 
Well, of course, since the children referendum, the children, whether they're born within or without marriage, have absolutely the same rights. They're not treated any differently under the Constitution. My concern about this, Claire, is really the fact that the definition of durable relationships is non-existent. We don't know what will constitute a durable relationship after this referendum, if this referendum is passed. Um, and, and so the, the sort of constitutional and statutory mayhem that that could cause is unquantifiable. We simply don't know what will constitute a durable relationship. We've been told that um, the, the measure of a durable relationship will be how other people treat you. Do they send you Christmas cards as a couple? Do they invite you to, to, to weddings and events and parties as a couple? And that's all well and good, but I mean, you just kind of talked that? about about um, who, who said that, that on the I think was, like the, the, in, Judge the, the Mary Baker, Judge okay. Mary Baker. Said All right, um, um, Roger O'Gorman, because we asked him um, yesterday in an interview about that, about what is a durable relationship, and he said we've chosen that language to ensure that we can protect other types of families beyond marital families, and that there is other language um, within the text there talking about a primary fundamental group in society and a moral institution that will well, guide us in terms of what constitutes a family. Again, and I know he used the term moral institution in the doll when the question of throuples came up and said, no, that wouldn't be a moral institution. Again, that's not going to be in the constitution, but also the definition of moral institution. And the other concern I have, we talk about uh, the inclusion, inclusion of single parent families. If this definition of a durable relationship is clearly based on an intimate committed um, romantic relationship, which it clearly is, if those are the definitions we're given, then what about the single parent who's not in a durable relationship? Okay, do you want to ask, answer that one specifically, Karen, because you're representing, you know, single parents. Yes, and what so Brenda is saying is really that, that important. It, it, they, don't, they don't fall within this durable they do. relationship. They absolutely do. And I can assure everybody we would not be spending time looking for this if they weren't included. And the reason I know they're included is because there is a political and policy intent that the government has clearly said repeatedly that they are included. That's the, the minister, that's the Taoiseach, mm. they have said it. But also legal experts have given us advice and said, because it says on or on other durable relationships, that it is not connected in any way just to a horizontal or intimate relationship that is specifically designed, and the Attorney General has said this, to allow for those vertical relationships, i.e. children and parents. That is the point of this amendment. So it's really important that voters know that, that single parent families, their children will absolutely be included. Um, for you, Michael, that's at the crux of your issue with it as well uh, about this, um, what is considered a durable relationship? You know, what about what Karen's had to say there that it is, you know, not like linear, you know, you're going to have it between your mother and a child and that there's many things that constitute um, durable relationships and, and families are formed on in this country now. Well, Karen is correct that the minister said in the Shannad in front of myself and Mary Seary Carney that it was vertical as well as horizontal and that he wanted it to apply to single parent families. She's correct in that. But the problem with that is what the minister says doesn't mean what the, the courts eventually find the Constitution to mean. And just to take an example, single parent um, uh, families, um, just take that example. Supposing uh, there's, a, a, I mean, a mother and child, that's a very simple uh, example, but take a slightly more complex one. A mother who has two children with one father and uh, he goes away and forms another relationship with somebody else and she gets another partner who 
by whom she has, say, two more children, is the, are the four children and the two parents a single family? Is the man who disappeared and formed another family out of that family? Um, these are questions which just simply are not going to be answered what by does, the government. What difference can that make if that's something that has to be um, decided by the courts? Well, you see, there's, there's, that's the very point. I mean, if, if we had... We, we put before uh, the uh, minister an amendment saying, please leave the definition to the Iraqis. And he said, no, absolutely not. That would create two-tier families. I'm not going to do it. But the consequence is that uh, every case, uh, every um, um, decision of the courts arises in the course of a, uh, of a case. And Mary is a barrister and uh, Brenda's a barrister and, uh, uh, you know, I'm a barrister. I'm we, a barrister. You're, not a, you're the only <laughs> no, non-barrister. I'm not a barrister. But, no, but, I mean, but, but let's be clear about this. Courts decide disputes. So uh, they don't decide general policies. They decide if, if two people right. uh, come together. So the issue that I'm, uh, that I'm saying is, is crucial to this is, is um, the example I gave where the, where the man went off and, and uh, had two children by somebody else and left two children behind him. What is the family? Is he, is he part of that family anymore? Did that family cease to exist the day he walked out the door? These mm. are the issues which the courts will have to decide. And at the moment, we have um, a, a cohabitation law. And for instance, the, the Iraqis has said, just, to, just to let me finish on this, Claire. The Iraqis has said, you're not going to get any benefits unless you've cohabited for five years or unless you've uh, cohabited for two years and you have a child. That is going to be swept away. Okay, so what you're saying courts, is that that's, the courts that's will clear decide. cut and there are those, that's, yeah, I think, exactly. an act from 2010 um, that's in law that, that you know, around cohabitation. And that's one of the criticisms of this, Mary Siri Carney, is the kind of vagueness about what encompasses a durable relationship and how that's going to play out in real life scenarios if you're putting it on the same footing as, say, a family founded on marriage. Well, first of all, the, the Constitution sets out a special status of families and sets out that our society is founded on the family. The family, as a result, have particular rights. Those are rights of privacy, rights of decision making um, that are that, that are especial to those to, to the fact their status as a family. The difficulty with that is, as you and I went about our days today and we met people dropping a, a child to, to midterm break camp, uh, doing all of those things, queuing in the shopping centre, we met people who believe they are in a family and we would look at them and recognise them as being in a family. They are our, our own friends, our own family members. They are single parent families, they are cohabiting couples, cohabiting couples with children. These are all families. The problem is that if they need to assert their privacy, assert their right to make a choice around their child in schooling, in whatever direction, uh, in, in all of those things, if they need to make that decision, if they aren't a married family, they won't get that option because the state in a court will argue that they are not a constitutional family and so they don't have that status and they don't have that rights. And this referendum is all about justice and it being fair to those yeah. families that are, and, are and just, living around us all, all right. of the time and, to, and need that status. To what, um, to what Brenda said there that, you know, under the children's referendum that there are rights afforded 
conflict between, you know, a child, the rights of the child are, are, are enshrined now in the Constitution and also around cohabitation laws that they already exist and they're pretty clear cut in terms of what defining what a cohabiting couple or, you know, defining that in law they offer protections in themselves. What would you say to that? And there are there are other protections in the constitution, but they don't include the definition of, of a family being representative of the society that we live in, the people that are all around us, the people that are our friends and our own family members. So they are not a constitutional family. Unless they're married to each other, the state doesn't recognise them as a family. And if you're sitting in the court listening to the state argue that your family is not a family, that's a fairly lonely and frightening situation that you think the constitution of your country doesn't recognise you as a family. That, that's a very stark and that injustice and non-reflection of society needs to be addressed and that's it will be done by voting yes on the 8th of March. An equality issue here, uh, Brenda would say, for people who are advocating for a yes vote on this, that over the years that there has been that stigma, that yeah. sense that, you know, if you don't fall into that uh, family founded on marriage, that you're somehow lesser, that this is putting all of that to rights now. Well, I mean, I know Michael doesn't agree with me on this, but I would have thought that it would have been sufficient to have taken out the line the fam on which the family is founded after marriage in Article, I think it's 4313, or 4131. Um, and that would have then left the natural and ordinary meaning of the word family to be understood in the constitution without any need to, to go any further and put in this really you know, uncertain term of durable relationship. So you take I out marriage? Support that. No, no, not take out marriage. What it says at the moment is that the, the state pledges to support the institution of marriage uh, subclause on which the family is founded. Mm -hmm. And I, I would have said that taking, simply taking that line out, I would certainly have supported that because that would then leave the non-marital family to be also included in the definition of family. My problem is with the durable relationships and the absolute nonsense that that is and mayhem. Do you, that how do you think that will play out, you know, uh, in a negative fashion, like in a very practical way? Um, you've concerns around succession rights there mm -hmm. um, about tax law. Yeah. Uh, uh, give us a sort of scenario that well, you're talking well, about. Well, OK, let me let me give you one maybe long shot scenario. But at the moment, we know that marriage revokes a will. If you've got a will, if you've made your will and then you marry without rewriting the will in contemplation of the marriage, your, your, your will is revoked from from when you, you marry. Um, if we are enshrining in the Constitution a durable relationship analogous to marriage, then the question will arise as to whether or not that has the same effect on succession law as marriage does. I mean, the court may well decide it doesn't, but it may well decide it does. We just don't know. Okay, and what will that mean? Well, it would mean that, that you'd have to determine maybe when the, um, the, the durable relationship began, what, what the nature of the durable relationship was, but, but did it mean that in the circumstances where somebody engaged in a durable relationship without marriage, was their will invalid? from whenever that relationship became established. Okay, do you see that as a problem, Karen? No, we don't, because we know that for real people out there, they are voting with their feet. Over 40% of children are being born to parents who aren't married to each other. Now, those parents may marry, they may never marry, maybe they can't, maybe it's a single parent on their own, but we have to respect and include those children. We also have to include all the other families. So there's families in and out to our organisation every day and I listen to them. And this isn't their number one problem. They have, they have cost of living crisis, they have homelessness, but it really matters. And if we vote no, or if we stay at home and don't vote, this is a rejection. 
This isn't status quo. This is an active rejection of these different kinds of families, the children who live in them. And look, we did so well in 2015. We included same-sex couples. It was a happy thing. This is another positive, happy thing for equality. And this is just our constitution reflecting the reality of modern life in Ireland, and we should welcome it. Okay. Um, Michael, on that, um, hugely symbolic, according to Karen, as well as from a practical point of view, reducing stigma and making things easier um, for single parent families here. Essentially, do you think that by referring to uh, um, durable relationships as well as uh, families founded on marriage, do you believe it dilutes the institution of marriage? Is that your, your concern here? I mean, first of all, I posed an example of the person who left a single parent marriage, a single parent on her own, and somebody moved in with her and had two more children. Karen doesn't answer that question, and she says that'll be for the courts to decide on someday. But are there, are, are there two families there? Does one family cease to exist when the man walks out? That's a good question. But a very interesting thing happened in the Doyle yesterday. Michael McNamara, TD, asked the Taoiseach uh, whether uh, there would be any particular uh, um, uh, special protections for marriage. And this is what he said in reply. If the referendums are passed and the constitution is so amended, it will still be possible for future governments and the Oireachtas to discriminate in favour of people who are married. That will not change. It will obviously be up to the Oireachtas and the government of the time to decide exactly on what basis they wish uh, to favour or discriminate in favour of people who are married. Now, that's the argument he made. But when Mary Siri Carney and myself were in, were in the Shannad, uh, Minister O'Gorman said, no, he wanted all, all uh, families to be the same, no differentiation between them. Mm. And the fact that you were married or unmarried was not to be relevant in the future. Now, I'll give you an example, which I think is really relevant. The O'Mara case that we had recently, which was on social welfare, uh, entitlements and the widower's pension being paid to uh, um, a man mm -hmm. whose, whose, whose partner didn't want to marry for, for 18 years. Um, apply that logic to, to taxation. Two couples living side by side in two houses with the same amount of children. One of them has all the benefits that go with the, under the present tax system to, um, to married couples. The other says, in the same way as Mr O'Mara did, excuse me, I have the same bills to pay. I have the same uh, household expenses. Right. Why am I being taxed much more heavily than the people who, who got married? And what will happen then is, on an O'Mara basis, the Supreme Court will say to the Attorney General, you defend treating one uh, of, uh, household radically differently from another in tax. And the, the answer in the end will be that the state will be, will be confronted with equality claims which leave um, the tax laws very seriously affected. Right. Uh, Mary Siri Carney, do you want to come in on that and what uh, Michael appears to be saying, sort of mixed messages um, from the minister regarding the impact this will have or otherwise on, on, on families founded on marriage? Well, what we have, if we look at the O'Mara case, there was a man who took three years to eventually get what he should have gotten all along uh, in the support of him and his and his children. He got it on the basis of equality, he got it on the basis of the, the status of his children and their right to be treated equally before the law. What he couldn't get it on was the fact of family, because his family was not recognised as a constitutional family. And that needs to be addressed. The O'Mara decision has led to a number of things that are going to have to be looked at from a policy perspective. But the fact comes back to it. 
they were a family, we all look so at that we, and find them a family. Okay. But the constitution doesn't recognise them as a family and the constitution needs to change to recognise the reality of people's, people's okay. lived experience. So it, it goes beyond um, symbolism and clearly the, the, the implications that we're talking about here, you'd accept that there are going to be implications when it comes to tax treatment, when it comes to pensions. succession and pensions and all of that. But that is something that you are welcoming. It is something that is a matter of policy of government and how what that looks like and and what would be the parameters of that. We we limit the rights and li and liabilities in law all of the time, and we do that for the common good. But the fact of the matter is that there may be implications here. Of course, there may be. I don't believe that the cost or the policy decision should be a bar to the fact that families, as we know them in our country, need to be recognised by our constitution. Well, the, the, the to exclude the, the, that the is, 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 is an insult to the people who live right. in those the, the families. The difficulty with that, Claire, is this, that if you, if you can only uh, be told that you're in a durable relationship by a court, how do you uh, fill out your tax return at the end of any given year? Do you tell your tax inspector that your relationship is durable and you're claiming X and Y? And this means, in effect, that the courts will decide on a kind of a blank check basis um, issues of fundamental policy, um, for instance, in relation to wills being revoked, Succession Act rights, immigration rights, um, family reunification rights. The courts will be deciding that and the Oireachtas will be staring at decisions coming down from the courts, which can only be amended by referendum. Clearly, I need no. to just, just come in there because the, the fact is that people will be going before the courts on particular issues and they will be they will need to argue that they are a family in order to get those powers of decision making or or those rights or those whatever it is only in that context that a durable relationship really comes into them proving we are a family i am a family this when you're before need, the courts when you're before the courts it is in at that so what point what about filling and out tax forms and all those other things well, that, you know that people will, will say well look within the constitution i'm in you know a durable relationship here therefore it will be in accordance with whatever the the requirement is to fill in forms. A lot of people don't fill in forms. How, they go how through their. Is your relationship on a tax form? Well, we do. Like. Most people are BRSI and BAYE workers. They don't go filling in forms unless they're calling medical uh, and and making claims like that from the state on on the money that they're due and they should be doing. But in that context, forms can be very clear on that. The provisions of government in in ensuring that there are those rebates to people can be very clear on that. But but durable relationships will only come up in the context of someone who's standing before the court saying, I am a family and I deserve to have this rights. Mm -hmm. You see, the thing is, we, we can't say, I, sorry, I, I know that, that there was great hilarity when the subject of troubles was mentioned in the Dáil, but the reality is that is not something that we can rule out either as a possibility, not necessarily troubles, but say you have a same-sex couple with a, a relationship with the surrogate mother of their child, and she's clearly got a blood relationship with that child, and that's a three-way relationship. If, if one of those parties parties dies following the O'Mara judgment, does that mean that the other two are entitled to claim for widowers, a widow's allowance? I'd say the problem Maybe, would. and is, yeah. I mean, it's not a problem. It's what I'm asking with all of this. Maybe this is well, the new reality. Maybe, not maybe that there are troubles right. living next yeah. door to everyone, but, you know, defining what a, 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 a new relationship or a relationship 
a durable relationship is in the Ireland of today. All of these cases, you see, will have to go to the court and probably to the Supreme Court because each case will be different. And the Supreme Court has already right. looked at the question of durable relationships and said a durable relationship doesn't necessarily have to be a long relationship. They couldn't put a time frame on it. So people can meet and fall in love and form commitments within a matter of weeks. Those could be durable relationships. All oh, right. Okay, I want to, Karen, you're shaking your head there. Yeah. And I just want to give this, word to you This is that. about real people. This is about children and parents and couples who we all know and love who do the work day in, day out of caring and worrying about people. We know what families look like. This is mostly symbolic. So if you end up having to go to... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss the Supreme Court and the Constitution, you're in a very vulnerable situation, as John O'Mara was, and we have to thank him for taking that case. This is for all the people up and down the country, the million people who are going to be brought in symbolically and welcomed into the Constitution, and that's why we need to go out and vote yes. yes. See, I don't think anybody disagrees with Karen, but the point is that the way this is being handled, the way it is being construed, is, is, going, to be, is going to cause mayhem. All right. OK, well, look, there we have to leave it um, for now. Differing views on that and indeed on the other um, referendum, both of which will take place on March 8th. My thanks to Karen Kiernan. Um, the others are going to stay on with me because coming up next, exit payments at RTE. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Media Minister Catherine Martin says she's been given reassurances by Ortiz Director General that the €450,000 exit package to its former chief financial officer was within Ortiz's rules and did not need to be reassessed. The payment to Brito keeps sparked heated commentary again today, including calls for at least some of the money to be handed back. Finnegal Senator Mary Siri Carney, Senator Michael McDool, and Sunday Times columnist Brenda Power are still here with me. Um, I want to come to you first, Mary Siri Carney, on of this. On this, um, we did hear from the minister that she has been given assurances by the Director General of RTE, Kevin Backhurst, that it was compliant that this this exit deal of four hundred and fifty thousand euro that indeed it, it stuck to the rules and it was compliant with the terms of the twenty seventeen voluntary exit scheme. Are you reassured by that? Do you think others in the political arena are? 
I, I think you would need to see the actual detail of how that scheme is made up. You know, I, I've seen in negotiated packages for people over the years, um, there's a very clear matrix of how you arrive at, at a, final, a final balance. So I would like to see that. I would like to see that published of what, what are we working from um, that arrived at such a, a, a place that the net payment uh, was 450,000 and that everything else was going to be picked up by RTE and ultimately the taxpayer. Um, so I, I think that that needs to be that needs to be published, and also then there are obviously the, we need a transparency about the other packages uh, that compare to a 2017 deal. So how you know what how what is this the 2017 deal, and and what does it look like for the, the majority at. of employees? Well, this is the appalling thing. You know that there were people who Scrimton saved and were obliged to bring their own biscuits when they were doing out, you know broadcasts outside and around the country and all sorts of things. Meanwhile. There is a, a, a matrix of a deal that can leave somebody to have 450,000 and walk away with the, with the organisation paying the tax on it. I, I think there are still questions to be answered. So you'd like to, to see, honest, you'd like to see more, detail more detail and more transparency? Just being told that someone and, is satisfied is not enough for me. No. Yeah, and that's what we are hearing, this request for more transparency. Like on this, um, Brenda, do you think, um, you know, that audit should look further back than 2017 on exit deals and the amount of money that's been paid out to departing employees. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to believe that this is a, a discrete issue or that this, you know, was, was contained in time in any way. It would, I mean, we don't know whether, you know, D Forbes uh, inherited this particular corporate culture and whether it pre-existed her. So I would say, of course, there would have to be, and I agree with Mary, we need to know the details upon which Catherine Martin says she's satisfied that this deal um, met with all the requirements. Because I remember the time that this was last discussed, there was some explanation given to the effect that it was Breed O'Keefe herself who had drafted some kind of a business plan mm. whereby she would be replaced by, I think, a junior colleague. And so her job technically would be axed, would be made redundant but that didn't actually happen and that a new didn't outside, work out a new outside which I suppose individual questions was in. um, the whole idea of redundancy and making a position redundant if there's a chief financial officer yeah. in place now at RT exactly so the same job and big organisations require yeah, that absolutely. Um, Michael on this like what are the legal implications around like these exit packages because there may be moral questions which has been brought up about like Breed O'Keefe should she pay some of it back and you know and, and I know the questions around asked around that from from the opposition. Um, but is there anything legally problematic with it? I think there is. I think from a tax point of view uh, and taxation, if it's not a genuine redundancy uh, situation, uh, you can, uh, uh, an employer that hands the bones of a half a million to somebody who's going to another full-time job in another uh, enterprise um, uh, has tax liabilities in respect of it. So um, uh, I can't imagine that a multi, 100 million, 200 million um, company such as RTE um, uh, can survive without a chief finance officer. So therefore the position wasn't being made redundant, somebody else was going to be made, as did happen, uh, uh, the chief finance officer of RTE. And in those circumstances, you know, if you're somebody uh, down the um, pay grades and the pecking order in RTE, and you're now going to be told that because of the um, crisis that you have to mm -hmm. lose your job. Uh, if you see somebody disappearing out the back door with 
450,000 in his or her pocket, you're going to say this is outrageous. And I, I think, you know, we, we, we're talking about transparency. I think people see through this a mile away. Let's also ask, because people have raised questions about a recent departure, and that's of resigning employee Rory Coveney, and, and how he could legitimately get a payoff here. Like in the private sector, when somebody quits their job, they generally don't leave with money, but we know that an exit deal was also in place there. Yeah. We don't have details around that yet. Well, there were weasel words there, I'm afraid. They said that he was not covered by this um, scheme, uh, that, that he received nothing under this scheme on his exit. But I have no doubt that he received compensation as part of his uh, exit from the organisation. So again, we need transparency and the uh, PAC is entitled on behalf of... And is there of, flexibility around that? Can an, can an employer do that, decide yeah. to, you know, you well, know that, that, that somebody, yeah. somebody is yes, leaving you, 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 and that they can come, come you, you, to a financial arrangement absolutely. around that? I mean, in the private sector, um, you know, people are told it's time for you to go and here's um, a, 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 a gratuity going. That's, that's normal. But, the, but the, the difference here is this is state money. This is money which is got from the, ta the taxpayer or the licence fee payer. And um, the, what's happening here is that uh, it's being allocated to individuals under the guise of cost cutting and redundancy and it isn't either. And it's also important it's to say, I think that, that uh, yesterday Kevin Backer said, you know, when he was asked about the question of accountability, that, oh, there has been accountability and, you know, people have paid the price and people have been exited out of the organisation. But we, we need to know if those people were exited with golden handshakes, because that wouldn't sound much of a sanction to me if that was the case. And, and I think that, that is a, a very crucial point. Uh, you know, he can't come in and argue that there's new culture and give us all assurances of that until we actually have the transparency of knowing what arrangements were arrived at and what 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 applications are being put to those arrangements. Is he making agreements since whatever about that went on before him coming into into the leadership of the role? Um, but but what agreements are, is he making? Uh, so I, I think it's in his interests and all of our interests that we see exactly the transparency of every deal and every exit. And then we're able to make that uh, a comparison of the, 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 the ordinary worker in RTE and okay. what sort of a, a raw deal they're getting. Uh, briefly, I just want to get onto the issue of compelability here. With, we have the Oireachtas Media Committee and, and PAC looking for, I suppose, the key players in the RTE scandal to come before them. Uh, I mean, are they likely to face challenges over trying to force these people to attend when there are sick notes, when there are other issues and other excuses for not appearing before the Oireachtas Committee, Michael? I think there will be uh, difficulties. I mean, if people have genuine um, medical uh, issues and I'm not discounting that possibility. I mean, people are naturally cynical about it and I saw somebody uh, on social media doing a cloud fund me uh, appeal to send one of them off to Lourdes for a cure. Uh, I mean, people are cynical, but there could be major psychological or stress implications mm -hmm. involved and for a Neuroctus committee to effectively um, say we're, we're uh, first of all asking the House of the Oireachtas to give us these compatibility powers and secondly uh, if somebody disobeys us we, we, we want to be in a position to send them to jail for disobedience 
Um, that's very, very uh, difficult for politicians to do. Yeah, and difficult ground as well um, when someone is not, reason, not, not, not attending for reasons of, of illness. Um, we'll leave that there for now. We want to briefly move on to a story coming from County Louth today in the town of Drogheda, where they're calling for a meeting with the Integration Minister to discuss plans to house up to 500 international protection applicants in the local D Hotel. Well, the Deputy Mayor of Drogheda, Kevin Callan, outlined their concerns to me. Well, Claire, I called the meeting tonight because what happened yesterday was that Drogheda got a very shocking piece of news that we were losing a massive piece of our tourism infrastructure, which is going to impact about 5.4 million euros on our local economy per year. So I called the councillors together collectively and tonight we agreed a joint statement, uh, which was across all parties and none, to effectively demand the minister to meet with us to get into discussions about how this can be fixed. All right. And what did you decide? Well, the decision is that there are a number of issues which form part of this. Number one, how this decision was made without any consultation with the local community or the public representatives or Loud County Council. How a decision like this could be made where 10 years of work in tourism development has now been just thrown in the bin. Um, we're looking at a number of options. One is possibly the seeking of an injunction around the fact that the hotel has changed use. But we would rather if the minister would sit down with us and discuss options for the financial situation of the town going forward forward and how he intends to mitigate the colossal damage and the risk to jobs and small to medium-sized businesses. And that was Councillor Kevin Callan um, outlining the, the fears and worries of people in Drogheda around the D Hotel being used to accommodate people. Now, we know from the hotel that they're going to keep on the function rooms, the bar, the restaurant, that will all still be open to the public. But there's still deep financial concerns about the impact it will have um, on the town of Drogheda. Mary Siri Carney, when it comes to this, we're hearing yet again, where was the consultation why weren't people spoken to in the town about this? Why wasn't there a plan in place to get everybody on board with any such move? And, and, I, and I am surprised, to be perfectly honest, that there wasn't advanced notification to the councillors, to the public representatives. I, I know uh, from my own home constituency of Dublin South Central, where decisions have been made, we have been given briefing in advance, mainly not a huge amount no, in happening advance. Three weeks. Yeah. It is happening three weeks from now. Yes, but... but Apart from the fact that, yes, we have international obligations and we have a requirement of accommodation and, and we want to do that also as, as a people, but there does need to be a calculation and a space here for a calculation of the economic impact because, yes, we'll have function rooms, so that means we'll have weddings and we'll have holy communions and we'll have all of those. And, and my concerns in the past when I have said uh, in meetings ourselves of saying, why, why aren't we having economic impact assessments that, you know, you have the florist that supplies the flowers for those weddings. You have all of that footfall. But here you have a town that has already seen job losses today uh, with the announcement over the last few days of Marks and Spencers. So certainly there, there needs to be that, that level of, a, of an economic okay. so impact. Not, you can, under, you can understand the ire of, of some in the community Absolutely. around this move. But this is, these are very real people with very real jobs that need to be safeguarded and, and in assurance. Yeah. And I don't think that it should be beyond um, the, the realms of possibility for all sorts of, of economic packages to be mm -hmm. put in to support the business community, as has been evidenced by the government at fairly various different stages over all the right. last number of years. Brenda, briefly to get you, uh, get you on this, I mean... The, the, what we hear is there is an accommodation crisis. You have asylum seekers, uh, intense um, homeless. So what is the government to do when you have a hotel saying, look, we have rooms that can accommodate 500 people? 
Although I saw some, some locals from Drogheda today saying there are other vacant buildings in the town that could equally have been repurposed. And that, again, as, as Mary said, that the hit to the local eco economy, especially given the closure of Marks and Spencer, is, is, is really difficult to expect people to take without, without protest. And, and you see, the, then the, 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 the difficulty arising out of that is that these objections tend to be painted as, as the sort of the machinations of the far right and these people unfairly and, and, and you know, unjustly tarred as being anti-immigrant and racist, which they're not. They're concerned for their own communities and entitled to. Uh, in this, this instance, I don't think that's being characterised yeah. at so all. Far, the, the impact... No. Uh, and it is, and it is okay. important that we we remember that nobody is right. nobody is characterising this as anything other than deep concern. The councillor there okay. used very tempered language and was very sensible and responsible. Uh, and that's the sort of engagement that we really well, genuinely need to get in. Because I mean, this is what the look. Like you're a senator within a government party, uh, <laughs> Mary, as well on this, and this is what the government have come under a lot of criticism around. Michael, like uh, on this one, are there legal implications around using hotels? in this manner now. I know there are, like, people would argue that there are planning implications. It's going to have a huge economic impact um, and that, you know, there, towns need there hotels. Are, there are planning imp implications um, and the planning laws aren't the only ones involved and consultation can only go so far. The root cause of this is that uh, um, Roderick O'Gorman has said that we are going to get 20,000 uh, as the new normal of um, asylum or international protection applicants every year from now on. And that has to be tackled by the government centrally. And uh, not merely at a national level, but at a European level. It's unsustainable um, and the country cannot manage it. And um, uh, Mary Seely Carney correctly says that we have at the moment got uh, international obligations. But it's a time that we revisited those international uh, obligations because we can't sustain this. And places like Killarney, um, Drogheda, Castlebar, uh, you can't simply keep and doing this. But people will also it. point, Michael, to vacant properties that are there that are not necessarily hotels that could be used and bought up by the state and used in this instance. But we, we will have to leave that there for now. Um, my thanks um, to uh, Councillor Callan, who joined us on that, um, and to Michael. Uh, Mary and Brenda are staying on with me because coming up next is uh, WhatsApp lowering its age limits. Is that putting children in harm's way? Do stay with us. Welcome back, Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney and Sunday Times and Irish Daily Mail columnist Brenda Power are still with me. And we're also joined now by psychotherapist Richard Hogan because we want to talk about WhatsApp and lowering the age limit um, for people to use uh, the social media platform. And I suppose other concerns about, you know, harmful content being shown to people at a younger age all the time, Richard. On this, um, we had WhatsApp reducing, as I say, the minimum age from 16 to 13. Now, when I saw this, I said, well, what difference would that make? I mean, my seven-year-old grabs the phone off me and sends a little, you know, tries to send a message to a friend using emojis or whatever. You know, there are seven-year-olds, there are six-year-olds using WhatsApp right now. I have never seen any sort of verification or I had no knowledge that you had to be 16 to date mm. to use it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a, it just, for me, when I look looking at this this morning, I was like, how much more evidence do we need to get from these companies, from these big tech firms to show us that they don't really have our interest of our children at heart. They're not, they're not interested in having less traffic, Claire. They're interested in having more traffic. That's the key thing here. And so they keep telling us, 
And why aren't we listening to them? They don't, they're, they're, they're not interested in protecting our children from going on their platform. Meta got caught for 1.1 million children on Instagram. Right? Instagram is more, is more harmful, I think, than, than, say, WhatsApp. And then Snapchat, again, is even more problematic again. And so we know that they want more traffic. We know that it's not that they want less. And then we also know the material that's on these platforms is particularly problematic for children. But what do you do around the issue of age, age verification? Because we had the education minister, Norma Foley, who gathered a summit of social media <laughs> yeah. companies and she wanted a commitment to support age verification. But she said afterwards, you know, that that's not forthcoming at present. That's but, not what I'm hearing from the social media companies. Claire, it just drives me mad that a commitment of support do we ask Benson and Hedges for a commitment of support? Do we ask Vintners or Guinness for a, you know, some support here? We bring in legislation to protect our children. Why are we so weak? You know, it's so confusing to me. For seven years, I've been going on about pornography mm -hmm. and teach children consuming hardcore, damaging material. And like, well, why isn't there any regulation here to protect our children? And obviously, you have to come to the logical conclusion. It's a simple one. It's money. Mm -hmm. Someone somewhere is stopping this from happening. Yeah. Right? We do have, and I want to ask you about this, Mary, because we have a new online safety commissioner in place who, you know, and, and there are, there's, there's legislation coming forward. I mean, are we, are we going to see a change to what we've had to date, which has been nothing in the way of, sort of moderating social media companies and, and having any teeth to tell them what they can and cannot do? Well, I think we, we do have the, the online safety commissioner. She's actually coming into the uh, Joint Directors Committee on Children next week because we're in the middle of a conversation on this, mm -hmm. this very fact of harm done to children and what we can do about it. So it would be good to, to hear from her and to, to explore what exactly she can do. She does have powers uh, to have material taken down. But at the heart of this, there is a difficulty in that social media, full stop, is it has a business model that is selling the attention of, of us. Our attention is being sold to the highest bidder. And reducing the age in WhatsApp actually, to me, is a very cynical ploy on their part to get children in, inducted into the use, in, addicted, because then that addiction is what's being marketed, and it is. We need a cognitive security plan around children. We need the support of that. I think there should be health and, and mental health warnings that are obliged to go out on social media, actually. I think I, go, I would go down the Benson and Edges route mm. uh, and I would completely and utterly support that. Yeah. I've had a long campaign of no smartphones if you're under 13. And, and listen, they shouldn't they're all They all sound like really worthwhile initiatives, but we've seen none of it to date, Brenda. Like, do you think there's an onus on the state to do more or do you actually also think that, you know, it's up to parents to try and control what their kids do online. Is it a mix of both? I, I think the parents have to take a certain amount of responsibility. I mean, we saw those statistics recently, which said that I think it's one in four six-year-olds has a smartphone. I mean, parents need to wake up to what they're handing their child if they're giving them a smartphone. You're giving them access to the most hardcore porn that you probably can't even imagine. And, and this is bound to have an effect on, on developing psyches. I mean, we saw that, that case, the, the, the Brianna J case in, 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 in England. Those young people had been consuming 
really hardcore porn from the age of about 12. The same in the, in the Anna Creedal case, one of the young lads in that boy case, a, yeah. a boy A, had 12,000 hardcore porn images on his phone. So, I mean, there's only so much really when this is, when we know that there is no such thing as age verification. We all know that. I mean, they say, are you over 18? Click mm -hmm. yes well, how and do you you're do? in. Well, how, look, look, on a very practical uh, note on the age verification, and look, you met with politicians yeah, as well, yeah. because this issue is, is, is really important to you, Richard. You know, what can you practically do? Like, what can you do around age verification? I mean, will there be that sort of face ID or, you know, because well, then there are data protection issues. Yeah. What are you going to do about it on a well, practical level? Absolutely. We're in the age of AI. We hear about all these mm -hmm. advances in AI. It's very simple with AI to actually do facial recognition. Or at the very simply, Claire, and I'm not a tech, tech expert, but surely if you could put your email in at least, that would stop a five-year-old or an eight-year-old from getting onto it. Uh, maybe, you know, an identification would stop a 14-year-old putting their passport in or their uh, driver's license or whatever. They'd get stopped there. But again, there's nothing in place. And these tech companies must be laughing when they're going to the government. I'd say I, I can see them drinking their uh, avocado smoothies before they go in, having a good laugh about meeting the government because this is just a box ticking exercise. These fools won't do anything here. We're too powerful. We're, we're dwarfing states. No, we have to. talking to politicians, do you think there's anything coming from Europe in that regard? Because that's what we seem to be hearing from the Online Safety we Commissioner. We will have the AI Act coming through. It was actually voted on a committee this week uh, through from the European Union. That will, that will have a, a, an obligation of transparency. Mm. Let's see how that works out and it actually needs to be voted and completed through until it is a proper regulation in the same way as GDPR. But under privacy law, you know, well, a lot of this is operating on the, the data that is, is gathered from people and then that is, that is profiling us to be marketed uh, and, and our attention sold. Uh, you know, there are, there are means we just need to look at, at enforcement. We have the two new commissioners in the Data Commission this week uh, appointed. Uh, so we need an upscaling there of enforcement uh, of our data and our privacy rights. And you received, did you receive assurances on that one, Richard, meeting no. with the politicians? Well, I, uh, yeah, more talks are needed. I mean, that's okay. the problem. All right, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Richard, to Brenda and to Mary and all our panellists tonight from all the late team here. Good night and do take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.